we all show up to retreats or come to meditation practice for um, various reasons. One form of dissatisfaction or another motivates us. It seems like um, uh, if we weren't dissatisfied with the norm, the status quo, that we wouldn't uh, take on such a practice as meditation. If everything were good in your life, if everything were easy and happy and uh, you probably wouldn't be here. Um, or at least wouldn't have started this path, is, is my general sense. That might not be true for everyone, but... Of course, this was the Buddha's experience coming from the abundance and privilege and access to all of the uh, pleasure and power and and he found it unsatisfactory and found this human condition uh, to be uh, wanting that left him wanting for a sense of well-being that was not found in sense pleasures that was not found in material possessions or external sources. And that core motivation for him, which maybe is a bit different for many of us, um, because from his worldview, from his understanding, we were in a, a cycle of reincarnation, rebirth process. And uh, a big part of his motivation was to end suffering of uh, coming back over and over and over. Was there a way to end this cycle, this repetitive cycle of being born into craving uh, for pleasure and aversion to pain? And that that's just how it is. We're just born into this body that craves that hates that this mind that compares and judges and fears and thinks about itself most of the time. <coughs> and so a big part of uh, that kind of traditional Buddhist and the Buddha's motivation was, is there a way to end this repetitive cycle uh, of having to have all of this pain and sorrow and suffering? Can we free ourselves from this cycle? And so whether, um, whether you land philosophically in uh, the bigger cosmological belief system of Buddhism, of multi-life view and rebirth, and, or it's just here and now, which I think many of us, including myself, a lot of the, for the most part, it's not so much about the next lifetime, it's about here and now. 
wanting to suffer less, wanting to end suffering, wanting to have a sense of well-being and as Vinny was talking about last night, a, a reliable refuge, to develop a reliable refuge here and now, not for some unknown future, but here and now. And some would even propose that this whole reincarnation business is just an uh, analogy for moment to moment rather than lifetime to lifetime. So whatever, uh, whatever the motivation is, I think it's fair to suggest that we're all seeking freedom. We're all seeking a greater sense of well-being. And um, probably not just for ourselves, but actually for this whole um, planet. And for our cultures and for our communities and for our families. And the big promise here, the, the carrot, is that um, actually we can do it. We can, uh, through these practices, train our heart and our mind so thoroughly that we have a radical embodied experience of transformation in our relationship to what causes suffering. And that's really key in our relationship to the causes and conditions that lead to suffering and unhappiness. And so we arrive <clears throat> on the cushion, we arrive in the present moment and we start to investigate and explore and turn towards what's happening. What's happening moment to moment? Why am I sometimes in practice? I want to just investigate. Why am I not completely happy right now? Why am I not totally at ease? What's blocking liberation, freedom, well-being in this moment? Why do I not just feel completely at ease. And then we see, and that's part of the mindfulness. That's what mindfulness shows us, what's happening. Oh, there's a repetitive craving for it to be different than it is. Have you seen that? <laughs> this repetitive over and over and over sense that it should be different than it is that I would be happy if it were different. And usually some subtle or not so subtle idea that actually if it felt better, if it was more pleasant, if everything was more pleasant. And even, you ever had that experience right in the middle of something really pleasant? And your mind's kind of like, yeah, but. This is good, but it could be better. Your mind ever do that? So, of course, this is the Buddha's uh, first and second noble truth. The reality of the difficulty of life and the suffering that exists and the cause, the repetitive craving that we're all born into. And that um, the beautiful thing is the normalizing, the way that, that the Dharma normalizes it and just says it's not your fault. 
your suffering is not, uh, it's not your fault. We're just born into a body that craves, a mind that is self-centered. And, um, you know, often you come on to meditative practice and come on to retreat and then you just get to be painfully aware of the causes of suffering in your life. Depending on how long you've been practice and practicing and how much progress you've made and how much freedom you're starting to find. But mindfulness as our, our core tool allows us to see clearly and um, often what we initially see is not such good news. A lot of the, I forget what teacher it was, some, somebody said um, a lot of the insights that we have are kind of uh, meditation can be one insult after another. And you sit down and your mind says you're not doing it right. You're not trying hard enough or compares and starts saying everyone else looks so peaceful and I feel so anxious. Everyone else looks so self-assured and I feel so insecure. That way that we uh, judge our internal experience by our ideas of other people's experience, by looking at their externals. You all look like you're enlightened, sitting so regally, so confident. And the Dharma offers us um, the possibility, the potential, and really the promise that if we train our hearts and minds thoroughly and we see clearly, that we'll have such a radical transformation that we can end suffering. And that's a big, uh, big promise. And then I think there's a, a lot of confusion about maybe what that means or what that would look like or what it would feel like, what would it feel like to not suffer? And that often we um, have this idea that, uh, again, fueled by that survival instinctual craving, we have this idea that the end of suffering would be pleasant all of the time. But of course, in, in this lifetime, in this incarnation, the best we can do, as long as we have a nervous system, as long as we have a body, the best we can hope for is a wise relationship to pain, a compassionate relationship to pain, not the end of pain. But so often we're kind of so addicted to pleasure that we think, oh, if there's pain, then there's something wrong, and I need to get rid of this pain in order to be happy. Perhaps your mind told you that a whole bunch of times today in one form or another. I need to get rid of this pain, this unpleasantness. 
And whether it's mental unpleasantness or physical unpleasantness or emotional unpleasantness, this idea that there's something wrong with being uncomfortable or that it's uh, somehow that it could be avoidable and that if I was a better meditator, if I was more, if I was more enlightened, I wouldn't be so uncomfortable. And I think this is really important for us to have a realistic idea of the goal and of what we're doing and what we can expect along the path. And to surrender and to give up and to let go of and to smash the delusion that you will ever have a pain-free existence. That's the bad news. I will deliver you the bad news this evening. It's going to continue to hurt off and on for the rest of your life. And just take a moment to really, can you, can you uh, accept that? Is that acceptable? Do you know that? It's going to continue to hurt. Even if you become a fully enlightened Buddha sometime tonight. Even the fully enlightened Buddha still hurts. If you have a body, you have pain. It's sometimes referred to as the pain body. That that's actually what this is. It's a body that experiences pleasure and pain. Unavoidable. So if you were um, uncomfortable throughout your practice today, welcome. And... uh, And it's not that the pain is going to go away, but that we can gradually learn to tolerate being uncomfortable. This is a lot of what mindfulness teaches us and a lot of what sitting meditation uh, and being in noble silence and walking slowly and eating slowly and gives us this opportunity, all of the opportunities we have throughout the day to turn towards unpleasant, what we call feeling tone the second foundation of mindfulness. The first foundation is body. Joanna skillfully guiding us, like really be in your body. Pay attention to your body. And part of that is ignore your mind. (laughs) Learn to just let that be in the background. And be, direct your attention over and over into the body. And then in the body you feel three things. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Three tones to every single sensation. Is this a pleasant sensation? Is this an unpleasant sensation? Is this a neither pleasant nor unpleasant? 
and we come to understand directly that it's not what's happening that is causing our happiness or unhappiness. At some point, and many of you are already there and you know this and you're just honing your skills. And, and for some of, some of you and some of us, it's, uh, this is new information. <laughs> really? My happiness doesn't depend on pleasure? And this is the core message of the Buddha. I really believe that this is the core of mindfulness and really the core of the freedom from suffering that's offered in this Buddhist path. It's not what's happening. It's not your aching back, your aching knees. It's not your loud mind. It's not the grieving heart, the unpleasant emotions. It's our lack of compassion. It's our lack of tolerance. It's our lack of, under, of wisdom, of understanding. And so this is really where the practice, we sit with it, we see it clearly, we develop understanding. And slowly we develop compassion. That's one of the hard things about this path, right, is that it's such a gradual um, transformation that happens. And ever since you read that first Dharma book, or you've heard your first Dharma talk, you've known what to do. <laughs> I know what to do. You all know what to do, right? Stop hating pain. <laughs> Good luck. Compassion is a really good idea. But the actual embodied skill of responding uh, takes most of us many years of uh, development and, and failure, knowing what to do but not being able to do it yet. And humility of saying, oh yeah, I know. My intention is compassion. My intention is kindness. I want to be able to embody those instructions that Vinny was giving this afternoon of uh, you know, returning to my original innocence and to really having these heartfelt wishes for myself. I want to do that. I know that's the right thing to do. I'm called to it. The Dharma for so many of us is like this. Uh, home, like a homing signal, this kind of call calls to me. Compassion resonates. Kindness, I want that. But we can't just make that decision. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to be compassionate from now on. None of us can do that. Nobody can just uh, do that. It's a, a skill that's developed through the hours on the cushion. Through the years on the cushion through the decades on the path. And not just the cushion, of course, it's so much more than that. In the mindfulness teaching, the Buddha says, this present time awareness, investigating the feeling tone, changing our relationship to pain, to pleasure. He said it's to be done in a formal sitting and also in a formal walking. 
and then also standing and laying down. And he goes and says, and in every single activity of our life. But to really be able to bring uh, that moment-to-moment awareness into all of the activities of our life, we need this formal training period, this regular coming back to the formal training of the heart and mind that is retreat, that is the, the monastery that we enter into for the week. So you're doing all of the right things right now by being on retreat. I just, I so deeply believe, uh, and I believe uh, from a verified place of faith and confidence from my own experience over the last few decades of, of doing retreat practice and, and being on the path, and that this is uh, the best thing you could do for yourself, and I hope that you continue doing it for the rest of your life and that it really works. It really, really changes everything for us and gives us a skill and leads to compassion and leads to uh, seeing clearly wisdom and responding appropriately. Of course, the other half of the equation is non-clinging. In some ways, I think it's pretty simple what we're doing and this uh, promise of the end of suffering that there's three skills that we need in order to not suffer. The first skill that we have to have in order to not suffer is compassion for pain, our pain and the pain of others. And, and And in true deep compassion, there's actually no clinging to it being different than it is. It's radical and complete acceptance. And also maybe from that radical and complete acceptance, there's a place of uh, total engaged willingness to do anything that we can and a discernment in, in what pains are avoidable and we can do something about and what pains are unavoidable. And it's just time to feel it and be with it. And that's tricky, right? That discernment of, is this something I should do something about? Or is this something that what I'm doing about it is caring? Actually, that that's the action, is care. It's not moving away from it or trying to avoid it or trying to stop it. It's just allowing it to be with care. <coughs> and then there's non-clinging as the second skill, non-attachment mindfulness, we see the impermanent nature of all things, just paying attention to the breath or the sensations in the body, you notice more and more clear, look how quickly everything's moving, constantly changing. No two breaths 
are experienced as the same. They're, it's always different. Thoughts appearing and disappearing, sensations arising and passing, sounds coming and going, just sitting in this flow of impermanence. And that instinctual craving and clinging that has us uh, cling, attach. If it's pleasant, I want to keep that. <laughs> this feels good. I want it to stay. Or craving for it to be here or to come back. How many meditators have suffered for decades trying to recreate that first meditative bong hit. <laughs> Felt so good that one time. I had all that bliss and if I could just, just that meditative experience craving. And the third skill uh, of the discernment of uh, knowing when to not take it personal. And that mindfulness also kind of gives us in something about Sangha and being on retreat and of seeing, um, oh, we're all having a very similar experience here. We're all sitting here in these minds that compare and judge, and these bodies that crave and reject. And we all think it's personal. And just the fact that it's like this, this is the human condition. I thought I was doing something wrong. And then I started studying Buddhism and I realized, oh, I'm just, I've taken birth. <laughs> this is just what it's like to be a human being. It's not so personal. It's not all my fault. And that skill of not taking it all as self and as who we are. And again, like, like with all of these skills, there's a, there is a discernment. It's not like just, come, you know, always be in pain. <laughs> you have to have the discernment. Sometimes you can be out of pain. And, and you don't want to take non-attachment so far that you're in a place of detachment and avoidance. Like, oh, pleasure is dangerous. I better avoid pleasure because I cling to it. You know, so you have to have that discernment of when a pleasant experience is appropriate and can we learn to enjoy them and uh, know the impermanence and enjoy the impermanent pleasure as it appears and changes and passes through our heart, mind, and body. And when is it not self on the ultimate impersonal and when is it actually i need to take full responsibility for my actions and for my reactions for how i'm showing up in relationship to this human condition The Buddha talked about one of the reasons it's so 
uh, radical what we're undertaking here. He said because it's it's the the norm is to live in a place of of clinging and greed and craving. That's normal for human beings. And the norm is to live in a place of hatred of pain and lack of compassion for one's own pain. That's normal. And that actually compassion is, is really quite rare to have true love and kindness and compassion and mercy towards yourself is a really rare uh, thing. Very few people actually do the, the work, the internal development to, to live in that place. He said we, we're going against the norm, against the stream, against, against our own survival instincts. You need to hate pain to survive. You need to crave for pleasure to survive. And you need to be a bit self-centered <laughs> to survive. And the problem is, is that it allows us to survive, but then it creates all of this unhappiness, a, you know, a kind of life of survival rather than a life of well-being. So he said, you know, you take this path, you train your mind towards mindfulness, towards seeing clearly, developing these skills of compassion and non-attachment. Not self, impersonal. You're going against, and it's a, it's a radical undertaking. It's a rebellion. He said, you'll be hindered. We will all be hindered in this process. We'll be hindered by the craving for pleasure because it's not going away. We'll be hindered by the pains. We'll be hindered by doubt by believing the mind's insecurity, fears, and doubts, by our own laziness and procrastination, putting it off, settling for the short-term fix over the long-term solution. I'll take a little bit of pleasure right now, even though I know it's going to prolong my craving and clinging and addiction rather than turning towards the pain and being with it. That procrastination, I'll put it off. Our laziness, neglecting to do what we actually know what needs to be done. He talked about these five hindrances The restlessness, the lack of uh, tolerance for being anxious, restless, impatient. And in his own life, I believe it was these hindrances that he was referring to as Mara. In the stories of the Buddha, there's this character, this relationship that the Buddha has. And that he's in this sort of uh, negotiation and battle and relationship with Mara. Mara as doubt, 
Mara as craving, Mara as aversion, Mara as laziness, Mara as in restlessness. And that even uh, as he comes to full liberation, nirvana, enlightenment, and he's battling with Mara up to the last moment, and Mara is attacking, his mind is saying, You'd be happy if you were having sex. That's the source of real happiness. The armies of Mara attack with lust. And the armies of Mara attack with hatred and resentment and violence, aversion. And the armies of Mara attack with doubt. The last thing before his awakening is his mind says to him, You're not worthy of true happiness. Who do you think you are? Everyone else is unhappy. Why do you think you should deserve to be happy? And most of you know these stories and have heard them. And I remind you, because I think it's important as we're sitting and your own personal Maras are coming to visit all day, in one form or another, and the hindrances are appearing in your mindfulness, and you're, you're mindful, and you say, oh, my mind is doubting, and I'm craving, and I'm aversive, and judging, and I hate pain, and I love pleasure, and this retreat would be so much better if they served barbecue. But the, I think part of the key here is that even after uh, Buddha comes to the full awakening, Mara never leaves him. Even after he wins that final battle. Uh, and I, my, my own uh, idea, my own impression is that actually he thought that Mara was going to go away. And he, said, he even says to Mara, to that part of his mind, he says, I banish you. And then Mara sulks off. The craving, the greed, and it you know, temporarily goes away. But then I think it's the very next day Mara comes back. That part of the mind, those hindrances, return. And so my sense is that, uh, and the, the shift that happens for him, that happens for all of us in our own time, in our own way, is that he no longer takes it personally. And he stops actually battling with Mara and he just says, I see you. Oh, doubt again. Craving again, aversion again, restlessness again, because now he's really established in that present time, non-judgment. He's not judging it. He's not taking it personally. He's saying, I see you. Oh, Mara's here. Welcome back. And as the Tibetans turned this teaching into, uh, they say, uh, invite the demons in for tea. Invite Mara in and actually care for that part. Vinny was pointing to this in the metta today so beautifully. Caring for even that unpleasant state of mind. This too included in my intention to be kind and compassionate. In the kind awareness that includes kindness towards our own self-hatred, 
towards Mara arising and you're not worthy. You don't deserve this. You can't do this. And holding even that in, in a spacious and kind awareness rather than the idea uh, that those thoughts have to go away for me to be happy, for me to be at ease. The pain has to go away, including the mental pain. Now, the good news is, actually, the more progress you make on the path, the less your mind judges, the less uh, afflictive emotions attack, the less Mara comes. I think that if you actually count it up in the Pali canon, not that it's a 100% reliable uh, <laughs> historical document, but uh, you know, according to that, when you look at that, uh, Mara comes back to the Buddha a little over 40 times after his enlightenment. In 40 different teachings, the Buddha talks about Mara is here. Right? These hindrances are here. Even on his deathbed, Mara is sort of celebrating, finally, the enlightened ones going away, and maybe people will stop meditating. Because Mara is that, has some investment in human suffering, the way that it's presented. It's like the ego that has this investment, this identification with you being unhappy rather than free. There's some way that Mara's invested in your unhappiness. Forty-something times over a period of forty-something years. Not bad. Wouldn't that be awesome? Would you settle for that? Only have like a self-doubt attack once a year instead of like a hundred times a day. But I like that. I like that it's in there. I think that it actually normalizes and humanizes it and gives us a realistic goal. What are we doing here? We're trying to see clearly and respond wisely. We're not getting rid of pain. But we're changing our relationship to pain. We're not getting rid of emotions. It's not, uh, we're not perfecting the mind. But the mind does become a more and more pleasant environment in my experience. My mind was so unbearable when I started practicing. I loved bringing my attention back to my breath. It's such a relief to ignore my mind. That first foundation that we did today was such a relief. Just ignoring my mind. Because my mind was so brutally judgmental. But of course the teachings continue to say, okay, is it pleasant, unpleasant? And then turn towards your mind, observe your mind, the third foundation, and we'll take you there in the instructions. And this is so, 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 so important that we have a relationship to our mind, not just being able to ignore it. And so then I've just got to watch my mind and the environment, actually the neighborhood environment of my, it's changed. Mindfulness actually changes. I think of it as like a neighborhood watch or something. <laughs> it's like as I watched my mind, I watched it become less hateful and less greedy and less judgmental and less, not, not absent, but less in like a better and better place to hang out and more tolerable and more, more wisdom and more caring, more forgiving over the years and years of practice and training it.
So that will happen for you and is happening for so many of you. You know what I'm talking about. It gets way better. But perhaps it doesn't get perfect. And that the only perfection that we can really strive for is a perfect relationship. To Mara. To pain. To the impermanent nature of all things. And that that's what we're really doing here. And I just I invite you to remind yourself that as you're going through your roller coaster that retreat usually is and the joys that will arise and the tendency to think that's the good meditation and the sorrows that will arise and the tendency to think that's terrible <laughs> and to try to step back and see it all as perfectly imperfect and appropriate and an opportunity. It's all an opportunity to see what's happening and how it feels and to do our best to respond skillfully, having the humility to know we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not going to yet. But we keep trying, failing and trying and a little bit more success and a little bit more success and then some more failure and then some more success and Each uh, mindful breath, footstep, bite of food, uh, phrase, getting us uh, closer to the goal or more established in uh, what will be any reliable, a reliable refuge, a reliable internal refuge and skill of having more and more compassion for ourselves and others. Less and less clinging, controlling. More and more understanding that it's not all so personal. and the ability to have that discernment of what when it's time to act and when it's time to just respond to what is. Does this make sense? You got it? Good? Simple. I hope it's clear. I hope it's not too confusing. And, um, you know, just completing the first full day of practice. You have a few more days, lots of opportunities.
We can just sit together for a few minutes before we end. you to re-establish your aspiration for the retreat, for your practice, for your life's energy. May each one of us come to see clearly to respond wisely, appropriately. May we heal what needs to be healed, forgive what needs to be forgiven. Come to know our worthiness and our ability. And may we do this sometimes overwhelmingly difficult work, not only for ourselves, but for the benefit of all living beings. These teachings offered for your uh, contemplation, your reflection, and to uh, see what is useful and practical for your own application. And uh, to do as you see fit in your practice. We have some time for walking practice and then... Uh, final sitting at nine o'clock and if this talk has brought up uh, questions uh, you'll have the opportunity in the morning after the morning instructions to ask questions that uh, maybe arise from the lectures in the evenings uh, so enjoy